For the rest of us, um, well, for all of us, because they're still here, actually, um, there's not really a place that you can turn to in your Bible for this because we're going to be flipping all over. And while we figure out our, uh, our Wi-Fi, um, I, I just felt I, I probably can't put all these verses up here because uh, I can't ask the guys to kind of flip through them that fast. Some go ahead and turn the, the uh, timer for me or else I will literally be here all afternoon. Thank you guys. So we're in this series called The Spirit of God. We haven't done any preamble about this. We haven't explained this really well, and that's partially due to the fact that we're just trying to get used to the move. Um, but it's, I think it's coming at a very good time for us, and I think it's a little bit overdue. And to be honest, I've never taken on this challenge in, what, 12 to 15 years of ministry and preaching. I've never done a series on the Holy Spirit specifically and it's, but it's, at the same time, it's become more and more something that I think we need to talk about. And th- there may be various reasons that you come at that. You, maybe you, you like the graphic, but maybe you're really scared of this. And really, the whole series in some ways has been uh, prepared in a way uh, from the per- perspective of a skeptic who's nervous about talking about the Spirit of God. Some of you don't come from what we would call a charismatic or Pentecostal background, which doesn't mean much anymore or seems very Christianese to you. But that particular aspect of the church that's probably very familiar and much more comfortable with language about the Holy Spirit than a lot of us may not be your perspective. Maybe you're a skeptic, under, under, not, not even knowing why we should take on this topic. It doesn't seem to relate. It doesn't seem to uh, connect to what's going on in your life. But um, I think actually what I want to do is not simply take the perspective of a skeptic, but remind you that this is not the majority worldview. The majority worldview, I don't think, is probably white Anglo, North American Worldviews, very scientific, very empirical in terms of evidence and facts, but that there's many, many, many religions, whole cultures that are actually very comfortable with conversations about the spiritual world and God as spirit. In fact, I had a conversation with someone from the Aboriginal culture, and I asked the question simply, like, what's this like in terms of Aboriginal culture and comfort with the spirit? And they said, actually, it's everywhere. It encompasses the whole culture. In fact, the particular language that this person knew, the language is built upon whether things are spiritual or not spiritual. Like, that's how the language is designed, based upon spirit and not spirit. And so I want to say this, that we better get comfortable with this if we're going to do mission. We better get understanding of this as disciples of Jesus Christ and knowing what we need, what we think about the Holy Spirit and even how to describe the work of the Holy Spirit because some of us, we don't understand this at all. We hear, we use generalities, we copy people that say Christians, Christian words like that person's really filled with the Spirit. Usually we mean they're, they're excited or they're, you know, they've had too much caffeine or something along those lines. Or we, we say, you know, that, that the Spirit empowers us or something, but we can't really explain more of these things. And so these next five weeks are just really a basic level, a low, low fly, so to speak, 
to try and get some understanding of, of what's going on with the Spirit. My experience, and I'll say this honestly, is very skeptical. And, and I will say, I, I think I've been really sheltered in thinking that I, I literally have the majority worldview. That's how isolated I can get. But if you'll turn the next slide for me, Matt. I want to talk about a song from a very important band, for, even for the hipster amongst us, among us. Uh, the Crash Test Dummies, who in the early night, who's heard of the Crash Test Dummies, right? Good Canadians, okay? Um, Americans in the room probably have never heard of the Crash Test Dummies because they did not subscribe to CBC Radio, where they're played constantly in the early 90s. I was reminded of this particular album uh, recently for some reason. I really like them. My wife can't stand them, but he's, uh, the lead singer has a very unmistakable deep voice. And I put that album up there because I really want you to go check out this album. It's very interesting. And you'll, you'll agree with me, his voice is almost so low that the dogs start just, you know, they start going crazy because his voice is so low. But there's a song, probably the most popular song off of this album called Mm-mm-mm-mm, Four Words. Anyone remember that song? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nice, well played. It's the story of, of three individuals, they're young children, and the, story, and the, so, the song is about these three individuals, and, the, and, and they're, all, they're all children. The first individual is a, a little boy, and he is a little bit confused because when he got into a car accident, his, his hair, which was black, jet black, suddenly turned super bright white. And the, the tagline in the course is, he, he couldn't quite explain it. it. It always just been like that. He couldn't quite explain what had happened. The second verse talks about a little girl who wouldn't undress before the other girls in the change room or wouldn't get into her gym clothes in the change room because she was afraid of the birthmarks that covered her entire body, which she also, by the way, as the tagline goes, couldn't quite explain. They, they'd just been there from birth. But then there's a little, I don't know what you call that in, in music where you have like a two-liner thing, uh, a bridge or whatever it is. And the bridge goes, but those two didn't quite have it as bad as the third kid. And this was his story. His parents made him come home after school, right after school. And they went straight to some sort of church meeting where they, and I quote, shook and lurched all over the church floor. He couldn't quite explain it. They'd always just gone there. Some of you, that's your experience of the Holy Spirit. Rightly or wrongly. You have an experience like this little boy, and, and maybe you're thinking from this culture very similarly, like that's the worst possible thing. You know, I'd rather have birthmarks all over my body. I'd rather have my hair change opposite colors than have to go to a church where they do strange things and I'm just not familiar and don't really know what to do with. And that's actually probably my experience. That I have grown up, I have pastored churches, I've preached about the Holy Spirit, but honestly, if I'm realistic, I come from a very skeptical, uh, as long as that never happens, I'll be okay. I mean, I can remember literally playing, praying, you know, Jesus, send me your Holy Spirit as long as it doesn't mean what happens in that song. I hope today that this is not where we end up. Not because I'm afraid of it as much as I used to be, but because I think 
It's such a narrow view. I mean, the writer of the song, Brad Roberts, is a well-documented atheist. I read what he said. I can't even repeat how he feels about God this morning. He doesn't like him in the least. And I think this is probably in his background somewhere. It'd be interesting to have a conversation with him. But see, this is such a controversial topic sometimes that it actually repels people from the very basics of Christianity. Some people reject being a disciple of Jesus Christ because they think it's associated with some crazy behavior that they're just flat out not comfortable with. And so I I hope that we can learn some things about the Holy Spirit that are helpful today. So go to the next slide. What I'm going to try and do this morning is I'm going to try and, and, and talk about basically two things, and then the second point has essentially four subpoints. Of course, I'm a preacher, right? I've got to have subpoints. But the first is just simply his role within the, the concept of what we call, the Christian concept that we call Trinity, and the second is that he is described as God. I think we've just got to talk about this openly and say that the Holy Spirit is not the ugly stepchild of the Trinity. He's not less God. He's not a third of God. He's not the third batter in the order of God. He is fully God. But I want to say that that, that then, instead of just talking about things that, that the Holy Spirit does, talk about things that we kind of almost all, if you're a Christian, understand is about God, and then say, actually, the Holy Spirit takes credit for those things. And say, there's lots of things, actually, that you probably believe about the Holy Spirit as God that you may not realize so hopefully we'll end up there. And at the, at the end of the day, regardless of what you think of the Holy Spirit, my purpose here this morning is not to simply give you kind of this unconnected view of the Holy Spirit that's just very radical and very new. I just want to remind us that the Holy Spirit exists so that God could be personal. You see, Jesus is proof that God wanted to be near us, but the Holy Spirit is proof that God wanted to be right inside us. Is that personal. I mean, Jesus literally said, it's better for you that I go away. And I always misunderstood that. I always got hung up on that. How could that be possible? You want in person. We have teleconferencing today. We have Skype. It just doesn't get as good as face-to-face, does it? How could Jesus leaving be better for us? But that's what Jesus himself said, and that's because God wanted to be more than just a human body. He wanted to come right inside of us and be that close to us. So I want you to hear that today. I want you to hear that this is how much God loves you. This is how much God cares for you. He didn't just send his son to die on the cross for your sins to connect you to God. He did that so that he could then give his Holy Spirit to you and live inside of you so that you could have him all the time to the fullness of God. And so we'll just start with that he's an active person of the Trinity. And I, I, I can't say everything there is to say about this. I, I want you to know that the hardest part of preparing today was what did I leave out? There's a big, at the end of my document here, there's a little thing called the cutting room floor. And there's a long list of stuff that I would like to say this morning that I just can't get to. But he is an active person of the Trinity. And so we simply have to talk about this concept of the Trinity. While this may or may not seem like something that you're very familiar with, if you're not from a Christian or church background, or if you're not a Christian here this morning, you probably 
perhaps struggle with this concept of Trinity that seems to be on the names of churches and is, is kind of everywhere in Christian language and circles, but what, what is it exactly? And I would say this is this really difficult and complex concept that most people get hung up on when it comes to this whole issue of, of God. That he is three distinct persons in one God. Okay, I'm going to repeat that because that should be the sound of your brain bending in half. He's three distinct persons in one God. Okay, if you're familiar with this, praise Jesus, because this is not an easy concept to get through. You will find this out if you ever try and teach this concept to children, and they'll look at you like, what do you mean? I remember my Dinah saying, you know, Dad, no offense, but this is kind of a difficult concept to understand. I was like, yes, it is. So I'll say it again. Three distinct persons, one God. Say, it's not that big of a deal. I can understand it. Did you know that that is the divisive point with most religions today that would have God as their basis? Did you know that this is what separates what I would say Christians, Bible-believing Christians from, say, Jehovah Witness beliefs? or Mormon beliefs. That's the primary divider. You can find out very quickly, even if someone uses a lot of Christian language, what they think about God by asking them, do you believe God is three distinct people in one God? I would say Islam is remarkably close to that, and that, that's one of the big pushbacks. How can that be? Jewish thought struggled with this. How can that be? The fact that Jesus is described as the Son of God and then the Spirit of God is described as the Spirit of God. That, okay, they've got to be less than, but there's got to be some sort of hierarchy here that, that helps us to understand this. And, and, and Orthodox Christianity says no. And yet it's remarkably hard to get our heads around, isn't it? You know, if I had told you that you had three members in your family and one of them got a lot of stuff and the second one you gave a lot of presents and the third one you fit in to wherever you could, you would say, do you not love that third child? That's not a very good parent. I would say we're not really true Christians when we have separated these out and put a hierarchy there and ignored and neglected to the point where one writer wrote a book called The Forgotten God because this doctrine... And this understanding has been so neglected for some. Some of you may have, uh, you have word pictures or ideas of what this looks like. Three-legged stool, this may be common. The Trinity is like a three-legged stool that everything stands on. I'll say this, this is kind of what I think of that. Um, that image, it's incomplete. It's incomplete. There's some aspects that I understand about that that I think are somewhat good. Okay, they're all equal. Yeah, you got that. But what, what is the stool then? What does it support? The Godhead is supported by the three stools. No, it, doesn't, it breaks down. But I understand why this was used because there's three equal legs that kind of all need to work together. But the truth is you could take one of those legs and if you balance properly, you could still sit on it. Right? Next one. Maybe this is your idea. This is very common. What's that? Anyone? 
water, ice, vapor, or steam if you didn't go to university like me. Okay, so it's like the same makeup structure, but you got three different aspects of it. And I would also say that that gets a from me because it's incomplete. It just doesn't quite capture the vibrancy of who God is. But I understand what the point was. The point was to try to give, you know, this idea that there's a oneness and a threeness all at the same time. There's properties of a threeness and properties of a oneness all at the same time. So I get that. Probably most, most common, maybe, that I, I have used. And Next slide. Yeah, look at that ugly mug. How can you guys look at that every Sunday? Anyways, what is that? Not, not my wife, by the way. That's not the ugly mug. That was, sounded so much better in my head. Three different roles that I play in one person. What are those? Well, I'm a bigger brother to my little brother there. We almost made it to the top of that mountain. Okay, that's my wife and I. I'm a husband in New York. And there I'm a father, and that is Eve, I believe. And I thought that was pretty cute. Usually you'll win points with the audience if you put a cute picture of a baby up. So I didn't have a puppy, so that's my baby, Eve. Okay, I'm simultaneously all three of those things right now at one time. And there's different times that I, I'm a, I act more like a brother, and those are unfortunate times. And then there's times, you know, when I'm, I should always be acting like a husband, and I should always be acting like a father. And so you see, but again, it's incomplete. So I want to say, I think, although there's images and ways that this connects us, it's still incomplete. It's still incomplete. The Holy Spirit is a very active member of the Trinity, equal, but does various different things. First Peter 1, 2 actually says, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. And this is probably one of the more brilliant areas in all of Scripture where you see this, the, the activity of the whole Godhead in one person's life. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So this is saying that God the Father has the plan. He's designed the plan. In the sanctification of the Spirit, that word sanctification, if you're not familiar with it, just means to grow in holiness, to be made more like Jesus Christ. It means to to mature, essentially, as a disciple. So the Holy Spirit is in charge of growing us in the way we look more like Jesus. And how do we have access to all that? It says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. That means we only have access to this through Jesus Christ. You see that? 1 Peter 1, verse 2. That's a very important verse, I think, for us to understand. And I notice that the writer decided not to put the son the second, but the son in third place to kind of maybe trigger us and help us to understand that this is not a hierarchy. Because we usually will baptize people by what? The Father, Son, and the Spirit. I have yet to baptize one. We baptize you in the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. Or the Spirit, the Father, and the Son. It's awkward for us because we're so used to this trilogy. But I love that about First Peter. He says this is equal here. 
In fact, the work of sanctification is usually ascribed to the Son, Jesus Christ. The work of making Him like Himself is usually ascribed, I think, to Jesus Christ. But in that particular text, it's ascribed to the Holy Spirit. He's an active person of the Holy Spirit. The second thing, He is described everywhere in Scripture as God. He is described everywhere in Scripture as God. You don't see this separation. You see this in the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The first words of the Bible say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And verse 2 says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is amazing. That God begins everything and we don't even hear about the Son, but we do hear about the Spirit. We don't hear about His Son who's going to save humanity because that plan has not yet been revealed. But we do see the combination of God is responsible for creating the world, but the Spirit is the one who does it. And I'll make that point later. What's interesting is that in Acts chapter 5, verse 3 and 5, this is basically post-resurrection of Jesus. And so we have, I I put those two scriptures together because I think they're brilliant thematically. In Genesis 1, you have the creation of the world. But in in the book of Acts, you have the creation of the church. I think that can be a legitimate name of that. And so at the creation of the world, the Spirit hovers over the waters and and does the creating. And in Acts, the Spirit hovers over the church and creates the church, brings the church into being. In Acts chapter 5, there's a really unique story that kind of shows us that I think the first believers kind of had this this flip-flop. They use these terms interchangeably. And so in in verse 5, actually, Uh, What happens is, uh, a little bit of the background, if you're not familiar with that particular story in Acts chapter 5 is, that the church has already been birthed, it's been moving out, but it's still relatively located in, within the confines of Jerusalem and and among Jews at this point. As Jews kind of converting to Jesus as the Son of God and starting to grapple with this concept of maybe there's two persons, maybe there's three persons here. And so what's happening is the church is growing like crazy. At the same time, people are terrified of what's going on in the church. So you have the church growing and people being like, I don't want to join that. At the same time. And there's some who are, they, they start doing these crazy things. They start living like family. This is where most churches get their understanding of like church as a family from is in, in, the, in the book of Acts where it says they began selling their possessions, helping one another out. This person sells their house so that the proceeds can be used to help everyone. I mean, some of you, if that actually happened today, you would say, I think I need another church. That's a little creepy for me. But this was actually happening. And so one couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they decided they're going to sell a piece of land and they're going to give the proceeds to the church so that the church can move forward. Because the church always needs finances to move forward. What ends up happening is that Ananias sells the land and then comes and brings the money and puts it, you know, I think almost metaphorically, at the disciples' feet, at the apostles' feet, the leaders of the church at the time. Doesn't say anything else. No one else apparently knows. But somehow the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter and says, He's going to tell you that's all the money from the proceeds of the sale of the land, but it's not. And so this is what Peter says. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit 
and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Wouldn't that be scary, by the way? You come and you drop a huge check in the box and the pastor goes, uh, you're keeping some for yourself and you drop dead. <laughs> I mean, talk about not seeker sensitivity. Here's what he says, though, about that. If you jump down to verse 4, he turns around and then says, you have not lied to men, but to God. You catch that? Why do you think you can lie to the Holy Spirit? You haven't lied to men, but to God. It's, it's like they just interchangeably use these terms. Peter understands the Holy Spirit very much God. Anytime you refer to the Holy Spirit, you're referring, referring to God. I think it's one of the most important things we can ever learn in our understanding of the Holy Spirit. This is not a secondary issue for us in any way, shape, or form. And then the last text, I'll take you to 2 Corinthians 3.17. It was scrolling through. Um, just, just wait a second for that, Matt. He's scrolling through uh, before the service. And what it says essentially is where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now the Lord is Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Again, this interchangeable use. Lord is often used in place of Jesus, actually. When the disciples, after Jesus has rose from the dead and they discover who he really is, they say, he, hey, the Lord is here. And so the writer of 2 Corinthians, who is Paul, says, where the Spirit is, that's where the Lord is. One of the preachers I used to hear was, it's Jesus without skin on. It's a fascinating way to understand. I think that, that metaphor is maybe a little bit broken, so don't quote me on the metaphor, please. But for the sake of trying to wrap your head around it, maybe it is helpful. The Holy Spirit does what Jesus does, but is not restricted by a body. This is why I think Jesus actually said, it's better for me to leave because you're still going to be attached to someone who has a physical body and with physical limitations. He said, but my spirit will not have those limitations. It's better that you have my spirit than just have to follow around someone in a physical body. So if the Holy Spirit is described as God, what are four things? Well, God creates, but His Spirit does it. We talked about this. God creates the world, His Spirit does it. God creates the church, His Spirit does it. You see that in, in Genesis 1-2, but also even in Acts 1-8, which says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It also says in that you need to wait for the Holy Spirit. That means you can't do the mission that we call you to without the Spirit of God in you. Did you know that? Did you know that you are helpless? to do the actual mission of God, which is in our mission statement, without the power of the Holy Spirit? I think we find ourselves in the kind of culture that's fairly self-sufficient. We sometimes tack on and ask for the power of the Spirit to do what we think is best for the church, but we need to hear very clearly that we cannot be the witnesses that God calls us to be without the power of His Holy Spirit in us. It's why we pray before services. We ask for the Spirit. We know you promised, you said you'd come. We want you to come. That's what our prayer is about. When I preach, I preach literally, Jesus, Holy Spirit, 
would you use my words? I know it's going to sound like me, but would it impact people like they actually heard from God personally? And I believe that if God talks to you through the foolishness of preaching on a Sunday morning, it is not because I craft a good sermon, although I try to. It is because God's Holy Spirit has empowered my words to somehow land and sound like it's God personally talking to you. I mean, it's countless times people have come up, did you follow me around this past week? Because the example you used, it sounded like you were there with me. You know what that is? That's not me following you around. That's the Spirit of God following you around. And putting my words with what you need on a particular Sunday in a particular place. You ever notice that you listen to something, maybe in a church service particularly, and then you listen to it later on MP3 and it doesn't have that pop? You know what I think that is? It's kind of the absence of the Holy Spirit. It's just, just words. Not, I'm, I listen to sermons on, on the internet. Don't, don't get me wrong. That's not a bad idea. But I've been in audiences where I was, I was there and man, I was moved. And then I listened to it later on video and it's just, it doesn't have that pop. It doesn't have that ring. There's something missing. There's, there's not the kind of the power. What is that? That's the Spirit of God not being there creating something in our hearts. Next slide, Please. Because God gives life. We do believe this about God. This is Orthodox Christianity. God gives life. We, even if you're not a Christian, you might be aware that Christians believe that God created everything. Okay, we're not going to get into how or how long it took, okay? Another argument. Another time and place. I think there's some room there even. But one of the Orthodox things that Christians believe is that God is responsible for creating absolutely everything that we know and understand. It didn't just happen. God didn't join what was happening. He didn't come along and reroute it. That's not what Orthodox Christianity believes. Orthodox Christianity believes that Genesis 1 is true. God created heavens and earth. In, he was there before the beginning. But here's what's amazing is it's the Spirit that gives life. There's, it's, it's constant throughout and was... I mean, I could bore you to tears probably with some of the research, but it's amazing even in translation that some translators have just translated spirit where it says breath. And these are interchangeable. And that's what it says in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, that God breathed into Adam and Adam became alive. That isn't just like God going, that is literally the text trying to say it's the spirit that came into Adam and gave him life. explains why we, we still can't totally wrap our heads around what makes a heart ultimately beat and how it stops. They start beating and they stop beating. Do you know what I think that is? Despite my lack of scientific knowledge, I think that's the Spirit of God. Starting heartbeats. But the Spirit does not just take responsibility for physical life. The Spirit takes responsibility for spiritual life. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, it says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, not just with someone preaching and speaking this out, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit in full conviction. So there's something that accompanies just the, the plain old speaking of the gospel. 
to connect it to our mission, let's not forget that. That there's no amount of you crafting the right words that will turn someone's heart over and start it spiritually beating for Jesus Christ. It is the holy, holy, holy Spirit of God. That's amazing. It should humble us. It should drive us to say, well then what are we strategizing so much more? Why don't we just pray for more of the Holy Spirit? Yes. That's what we're saying. That we can't do this without the power of the Holy Spirit giving life, breathing life into dead spiritual bodies. And believe me, if you don't think that the world is spiritual, again, I say this is such a minority we need to get with the rest of the world that is very aware and very comfortable with the fact that there is something spiritual around us. And there is a spirit. And there is a Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 12.3 says, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Do you want me to repeat that? In... No one can ever say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. Nobody can say Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Nobody can say Jesus is in charge. Nobody can say Jesus created all things. No one can say Jesus is sovereign over anything without the Spirit of God in them breathing life into them. Seems like perhaps we need a little less strategy on mission and a lot more of the Spirit breathing into what we do. You agree? Two point four. Two, or sorry, 2.3, sorry. I'm going to close this thing out with 2.3, I think. God has emotions. God being so personal to us. He was, reveals that he has emotions. You know, you look through the annals of history and you see the different various religions and you see very inanimate gods. Even though they may call them animate, they're very inanimate and very stoic, right? Maybe your perception of God is very stoic. You know, God the Father, he sits on a throne and if you can get his attention, maybe he'll do something. And you don't think of him as, you think of him as the, the, the person who is almost like those guards at Buckingham Palace. Anyone have that image of God the Father, right? You ever seen those guards, right? You can't wave your hand in front of them. They just stand there with their things. They're trained, they're paid. Their very salary depends on whether they smile or not. And they wear those crazy hats. I don't know how they put those things on without smiling. No disrespect. Some of us, that's how we think of God, but God's never described like this in the Bible. In fact, God is described as having great emotions. And guess who experiences those emotions? It's the Holy Spirit of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 And you became imitators of us in the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. He was happy when this happened. 
You heard the word, you believed, and there was joy in you that you couldn't understand or even express or explain very well because it was the Holy Spirit in you releasing joy. That's the positive side. Negative side, he can be grieved. Did you know you can disappoint the Holy Spirit of God? He can be grieved. Ephesians 4.30. The whole chapter uh, 4 in the, in the book of Ephesians is about obedience. It's about following Jesus with everything that we do. And here's what it says in Ephesians 4.30. It's, it's like the writer is saying, the writer Paul is putting a, a, a kind of like a little asterisk. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of re- redemption. Meaning Jesus poured out his blood. He poured out everything for you. Don't disappoint him by ignoring what he has called you to do. This is not, by the way, to gain God's affection. Don't confuse those two. We don't obey Jesus because by obeying, then we receive the blessing. But it's very similar to a father or a mother or a parent or even a friend who said, can you do this for me? And they let you down. And there's something in your heart that even though you love them and even though you will help them, even though you will be there for them, there's something about that that makes your heart sink. Have you ever emotionally been disappointed by someone who you love very much? Anyone have that experience? You don't stop loving them. You don't always turn your back on them. Sometimes you do. But sometimes, no matter how much you love them, there's something that drops in your stomach. I don't even know how to explain it. We we call it, it's like something happens in the pit of our stomach. I don't even know where the pit of my stomach is, but I know that feeling. There's something in my gut that goes, oh, so disappointed when I want to do something kind for my children and they don't get it, or my friends. And it, they're not thankful. It's just like, oh, oh, I'm sad about this. God says we can grieve his Holy Spirit when we don't pursue obeying Jesus Christ because Jesus knows the best for us. And he can be quenched. I don't even know how to use this word, not in, in, in the word that we think. First Thessalonians 5.19 just says this. Um, it's really complicated. Do not quench the Spirit. similar sort of way. Do not agitate the Spirit. Why? Because He's a Holy Spirit. Which means He hates sin. Not sinners. Sin. Makes Him sick to His stomach. This is a writer of the Bible pleading with us. Don't make God sick. It's amazing. It's, there's kind of a hush that comes over me when I hear that because I'm like, oh, wow, I have probably numerous times without me even realizing quenched the Spirit, disappointed the Spirit, made Him angry, grieved Him. I sure hope somehow I can make the Spirit happy. And so I say, that this is where I just open my arms and say, isn't Jesus good that, that He knows all this about us and He still beckons us to come? And so I'll call the band up now because my time is out. And say, our hope for this series is, is not to really give you more information, really. This is about you wanting more of God. 
Our hope is not that you walk away with more information. Our hope is that you walk away hungry for a real personal experience of the Holy Spirit of God. That you ask for it as we partake of communion. That you pray about it when you're not here. That you ask somebody to pray for you and with you so that you can receive more. of You don't even know what that looks like. We're not even going to talk about the filling of the Spirit or the baptism of the Spirit because I think sometimes those words are so confusing now that they take a long time to describe. But here's what it simply is. Do you want more of God? Do you want God so deeply in your life that people can tell right away that you've met with the Creator of the universe? Do you want people to know through your conversation that God Himself lives right inside of you, then I would say, ask. That is the context of that verse. Ask and you will find. As we partake then this morning, let us not forget that you did not get access or that opportunity because you were good or you said, I really would like to believe today, but because Jesus Christ Himself came to this earth, who was God, paid for your sin and says, now you may enter into the Holy of Holies. Now you may have access to the presence of my Spirit. Now you may have the more personal side of God like never before. And so this is a great opportunity for us to both ask and worship our Father this morning. Let's, let's partake together.